Hello, I'm Paul Scott, and today I'm talking to Andy Thomas, CEO of Cohort, ticker CHRT. Hello, Andy. Good afternoon. Uh, quick disclaimers first, I'm not charging a fee for this interview. I do not hold any personal position in cohort shares, and this is not financial advice nor a recommendation. It's just for general interest, and please, as always, do your own more detailed research. Okay, so turning to cohort then, I've followed the company for many years, um, never really researched it in detail, if I'm honest, as it seems quite complicated to understand the group. But after seeing your excellent recent results, I thought I'd re reach out to you to learn more about the company. So could you brief us on what Cohort does and maybe a bit of the history as well? Yes, of course. Um, so Cohort is a group of defense technology businesses. Um, we have six businesses at the group at the moment. Um, our essential operating principles are that um, our businesses are kept uh, small, uh, a, a medium size at most. I think our largest has got just a little over 300 people. Um, innovative, agile, responsive to customer needs, and with a good degree of autonomy as well. Within the um, obviously financial, but also regulatory and legislative uh, controls that we need to operate in this business. Um, and we operate uh, a small but tight and pretty experienced headquarters uh, team. Um, so, um, uh, you know, we, we um, I and um, my uh, executive director colleague Simon Wolf have a close relationship with the MDs of all of our six businesses. We see them very regularly. We work very tightly with them. Um, and I have um, some expert colleagues on the board and in my headquarters team to support and assist them. Um, but um, what, we, what we don't try and do is you know, sort of have a large uh, headquarters that, um, uh, in order to um, you know, run central functions and coordinate resources around the group. Uh, and it's our experience that uh, in the sector that we operate in, having self-contained, tight, innovative businesses operating very closely with their customers um, is a, a, a model that customers prefer uh, and that is better um, for um, uh, you know, for our operations as well, that it is trying to sort of run a large coordinated group. Um, uh, it makes us more innovative, it makes us more responsive, and it takes a lot of cost out of the operation of the group as well. So that's that's if you like the fundamental uh, operating strategy. In a sentence, we try and combine the benefits of both having small innovative businesses um, and a larger financially stronger group that can interface with customers at a higher and deeper level. Um, we were founded um, back in 2006 and uh, we, we IPO'd um, uh, and uh, at that stage just with one business um, uh, under the parent um, and we've done a number of acquisitions since then to get where we are. Um, uh, our original strategy was to focus on uh, defense techno technological advice. It was just around the time, you may recall, that Kinetic was privatized, which had previously been the government's in-house sort of source of defense technology advice. Uh, and so we saw the opening out of that uh, market as a real opportunity. But over time, um, the strategy has evolved much more towards product. Um, and although so we now do provide some uh, really rather successful um, uh, technical defense services. Most of what we do is now product. Um, 
The UK remains our largest single customer, um, but we also export a very substantial proportion of our revenue. Um, and our businesses, um, the six businesses, four of them are based in the UK, uh, but two of them are also based elsewhere in Europe. So we are increasingly an international group as well. Um, and our strategy has um, three simple pillars, really. Um, one is organic growth. Um, we look to find new opportunities for our existing businesses and develop new products in-house uh, to enable ourselves to grow that way. Um, the second is growth through acquisition. Um, uh, and, of course, we're always on the lookout for um, small to medium-sized businesses in our sector that meet our criteria, but we're very selective. We don't sort of insist on doing two acquisitions a year or anything like that. Um, and the third uh, is ensuring that the whole thing holds together well so that we, pr we, pr uh, we provide um, good transparency to investors. Uh, we ensure that we meet all of the financial and, leg uh, and uh, legislative and regulatory requirements that apply to our sector um, and that we apply good governance throughout the group. So that, that's it um, in, a, in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, sorry to interrupt there. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, thanks, um, Andy. So, how long? I should know this, but how long have you been running the running the show there and your key team members? Um, well, I I took over in two thousand and nine, uh, Paul. So I've been doing it. Wow. doing it for, for quite a while now. Yeah, Probably yeah. The longest serving um, uh, um, uh, chief executives on AIM. Um, as they say, you get you get less than that for breaking and entering these days. Um, but no, I'm, I would say I, I enjoy my job very much. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's it's a pleasure to run an exciting business like this. Um, uh, and um, uh, yeah, I, I hope to continue doing it for some years to come. Yeah, that's good stuff. How about your CFO? How long has uh, he been around? Uh, uh, he's been around, um, in fact, as CFO for slightly longer than I than I have. So the, the wow. pair of us make a good team. Um, <laughs> the, the two of us, and indeed the chairman as well. Um, uh, have, a, have a bit of history together. As we all worked together at Alvis, where uh, Nick Press was ch uh, chairman and chief executive. You may recall Alvis, um, although having a, a long history, is one of the, um, the UK's great car-making businesses. Um, uh, yes, yes. In, its, in its latter years, focused on armoured vehicles um, uh, and, uh. Uh, and became actually um, uh, Europe's leading provider of, of armoured vehicles before it was uh, acquired by BAE Systems back in 2004, if I remember correctly. Um, and after that acquisition, um, Nick and I in particular decided that um, we, rather than go and find a new role um, in, a, in, a, in a company elsewhere, might try and set something new up. And we got mm. together uh, with a guy called Stanley Carter, uh, who owned a business called SCS, which was our, our very first operating business. Um, and the three of us working together took that to the, to the stock market in 2006 with a strategy of growth through um, uh, both organically and by acquisition. And shortly afterwards, Simon, um, who had stayed with BAE Systems, um, decided that that perhaps wasn't the place for him and came and joined us. So that, that's, that's how we all got together. How oh, interesting. Yeah, that's actually preempted one of my follow-on questions, which was to ask who... Um I've got on my list Albert Carter, but I see his third name uh, is Stanley, Stanley, isn't it? I mean, the 21.9% yes, right. um, shareholder still, I see. He's the biggest shareholder, yeah. isn't he? Yeah, does yes, he, is he actually, actually, actively involved in the business in any way? Uh, Stanley was a board director for many years. He's now um, retired uh, from that role, but he remains actively interested in the business. Um, and of course, uh, as our largest single shareholder, we do keep him 
well briefed on what's going on. So I speak to Stanley from time to time, to time as, as does uh, our chairman as well. Yeah, well, I think that's very encouraging when somebody with a big shareholding retires and they keep their shareholding. That says to me something, something very positive. So, yeah, good news. Um, now, in terms of your acquisitions, I, I should have uh, mentioned, I should have looked at this before I sent my questions over, but I see in your results present presentation slides that are available on your website, uh, so I, I urge people to have a look at that. Slide 23 actually shows the timeline of the various acquisitions that you've done. So are you happy with all of those? Have those worked out as planned, or did you make any mistakes, would you say? Um, well, um, I think acquisitions um, are uh, obviously, as, as, as it's well known, uh, a potential source of business risk. And um, I think I, I, I would not claim to you, uh, Paul, that, that, that everything uh, that we've ever done on that front, or indeed many others, has ever gone precisely according to plan. Um, but what I would say is that we've had a good return uh, on, uh, on all of our acquisitions uh, to date. Um, I think uh, in, in, over the longer term, we've always had a good financial return from our, uh, from our investments. And I would say operationally, I'm, I'm happy with all of them now, including the most recent ones, where it's perhaps too early to get a good sense of financial return. Um, so, you know, that, that overall, we have perhaps been more successful than the average uh, on that. Mm. And that's because, uh, as I mentioned before, we're pretty selective. Um, we don't have... A, a run rate of acquisitions that we're determined to continue with. And also because we're a pretty experienced team. I mean, Simon and I have done a lot of these over the years, and we're supported by a really strong in-house legal team um, uh, and, uh, and others covering specialist areas um, of, of business within the headquarters team. Um, so I think we've been able to do some pretty good deals. Um, some, I mean, some have been spectacularly successful. Um, I, I would highlight Mass in particular, um, which was our, our first ever acquisition uh, back in back in August 2006, um, which I think cost about 30 million uh, was mm. the um, was the investment, um, and you know it was not knocked knocked out eight and a half million of, uh, of operating profit last year. Um, so so that that's been pretty good over the years, um, but uh, you know o overall. Um, uh, you know, and I, I will certainly own up to um, occasional blips and issues that we've had to deal with. Um, I feel very positively about all of the businesses in our portfolio. Well, that's music to my ears. There's, as a, as a, um, a private investor myself, you know, I, I, I don't like acquisitive groups where they, they, they go too big and they borrow too much and they go out of their area of expertise. But I do like stuff like this, where you're buying businesses you know, presumably, Paying a sensible price for them and um, not using bank debt is that is that a fair way to look at it? Um, I think that is a fair way to look at it. I mean, if you if you look at us um, uh, over the last ten years, say since um, uh, 2013-14, because we recently had our results, that was you know, um, in that period in that period of time, um, I mean, effectively our net cash has been approximately 16 million. Uh, right at the beginning and and now, so you know the, the bank position hasn't changed at all. And in that time, um, we've paid out uh, 32 million or so of dividends. Um, the um, the revenue has grown from 70 odd to 180 million. Um, profit from uh, 8.2, I think, to 19.1. Mm -hmm. 
and the order book has grown from 82 million to 329. So if you look, if you look at us as a sort of black box um, that chucks out dividends from time to time, you know, we've, we've not increased our bank borrowings to pay out that 32 million, and we've increased the size of the business and invested both in acquisitions and in new product development very substantially. Yeah, very impressive. So in terms of um, the future then, are you planning any more acquisitions and what sort of things would you be looking at and what price criteria would you pay? Uh, yes, acquisition does remain an important part of the strategy. Um, but as I said, we are pretty selective. What are we looking for? Well, tiny businesses in the defense technology area because that's what we know about and that's where we can add value. Um, uh, in terms of size, um, our size range um, well, perhaps in terms of people, ranges from sort of 50 uh, or so to a bit over 300. Um, the more important thing is that they're not so big that they start to get sort of bogged down in internal processes and that they've got a, a strong culture of innovation and agility, and, and all of our businesses have that. Um, I think it's important that there's some kind of sustainable competitive advantage. Um, technology in our business can move pretty quickly. Um, but it's, it's, it's possible to get ahead of the pack. Um, and, um, uh, you know, that's, so we're not just competing on price the whole time with people who are offering, you know, almost identical products. We've got to have some kind of sustainable competitive advantage. That can be in terms of technology. It can be in terms of relationships and, and history or installed base. Um, but something that isn't just going to evaporate. Um, and some kind of access to growth opportunities is important as well. Um, you know, defense as a market is growing at the moment uh, uh, globally, um, but that's not always the case. Um, but even when it's shrinking, there are sectors within defense because it's a very wide space that are showing growth because of the way that the technology is growing. And so we look to find those as well. So those, those are our criteria. Um, and if we, if we can meet those, then we'll try and reach an agreement with a seller that satisfies both parties. One of, the, of our other advantages, um, you know, being a, a sort of tight, small headquarters team, um, is that um, we can apply effectively a sort of top management um, uh, focus on every acquisition. Uh, and that means that you know, the people that the sellers are dealing with are the people who are actually able to make decisions and not through working within a set of constraints that have been imposed on them from above. So we can come up with creative ways of bridging value gaps between buyers and sellers, which almost always occur in discussions of this sort of nature. Yeah. And do you ever buy um, business, smaller businesses where the owners want to retire, for example, and are uh, happy to sell for a, a relatively modest price? Does that situation arise much? Um, well, certainly the first part. Um, whether they're always happy to sell for a very modest price <laughs> may be a different question. Um, but um, no, that, that is, I mean, we, there, there are a number of models um, uh, for, for, our, for our acquisitions. In some cases, and it's not unusual, um, we will actually get a call from um, uh, founder, founder managers um, uh, who, or, you know, or their representatives uh, who are looking to retire and so to liquidate their assets and find a buyer for their business. Um, and uh, you know, often they have a strong emotional attachment to the business as well as a financial one. Um, and one of, the, uh, one of the features of selling to a business like ours is that we will retain the identity of the business. We see the value um, in um, uh, the, uh, you know, the relationships that the business has built up, and those are tied in with its name as well. So, um, you know, we, we won't um, squeeze the life out of it. We won't just sort of integrate it into a division of another business. 
um, we, we will maintain its identity uh, and we will give it greater financial support uh, in order to enable it to grow. And that's attractive um, to many sellers, but that's not the only sort of um, uh, acquisition that we do. Um, we, we, we're sometimes approached by corporate sellers who are going through a strategic readjustment who um, want to find a new owner for part of their business, and that's certainly something that we look at as well. Um, and in some cases, we're approached by strategic sellers who want to remain with their business and, and remain part of its management, uh, but find that they are unable to get the financial support that they need to follow their strategy uh, if, if they themselves remain the owners. So, yeah, but those, those are the sort of models that we typically follow. Yeah, very interesting. Um, now, in terms of products, um, we've touched on this a bit, but uh, and there is more information on this that I've just found in the annual report, so I probably should have researched this a bit better, so apologies for that. Um, given that you've got these six group companies, I, I do think that makes it quite difficult for private investors to analyze and understand the group. So could you, in terms of actual products, could you simplify it for us and just tell us what your main and most profitable actual physical products are and what competitive advantages those, those have? Yes, I'll do that in a moment. But first, I'll address your point about um, about complexity. Um, I'm pleased you mentioned that because this year um, we have reorganised the way that we report. And so instead of um, providing separate reports on six profit centres, we now report through two divisions. Uh, and those are communications and intelligence, that's the first division, and sensors and effectors, that's the second division. Effectors, in this case, being a sort of um, term of art uh, in, in defense, meaning um, uh, things that create an effect. Uh, and in our case, that's things like torpedo launchers or decoy launchers. So um, communications and intelligence comprises three of our businesses. Um, our Portuguese communications business, ERD, um, our uh, technical services uh, and electronic warfare business based in Cambridge and Mass, um, and our uh, specialist business that uh, works with technology partners to supply a technical product into the UK government, which is Marlborough Communications. So those three focus on communications and intelligence. And then our other three businesses, uh, Chess, which does um, optical and electro-optical surveillance and targeting systems, Elac Sonar, that's based in Germany, um, that provides complete sonar systems and hydroacoustic products, and SEA, uh, which is our other maritime systems uh, company based um, in the west of England. Those make up the sensors and effectors division. And the, the revenue contribution of each of them is sort of not far off equal. It's about, um, last year it was um, 86 million from communications intelligence and about 96 million from sensors and effectors. Um, uh, although the, the, the profitability of the two divisions does, uh, does, does vary, it has the order book. But in terms of our, our most profitable products, I can give you a few examples. Um, at Mass, we provide software uh, for electronic warfare operation support. Um, and that's, uh, two, two examples of that, we provide a national electronic warfare database. Um, uh, which is, is used in the UK, but is also used by a number of other countries, which enable them to keep a record uh, of all of the, um, uh, of the different electronic warfare intercepts that they've made of, of things like radars or aeroplanes, um, and link that to a big uh, geographical and system-type database uh, so that they 
know where a lot of their potential opponents are and the kind of equipment that they're operating. And they also provide software which models uh, the engagement between um, a missile threat and, say, a ship or an aeroplane, and how the countermeasures used by that ship or that aeroplane are able to defeat or not the missile threat. And those are uh, software products, and they're quite unique. Uh, very, very few of any other companies around the world uh, offer that particular group of products. Uh, and so um, uh, that, that, that they are very successful from our point of view. Other very successful products, torpedo launch systems um, from SEA. We have, um, again, a unique product there, which is able to launch pretty much any NATO torpedo, and some from other countries, um, like, for example, the, uh, uh, the South Korean Blue Shark as well. Um, so that's very attractive uh, to customers who have um, uh, stockpiles of different types of lightweight torpedo, or who want the flexibility uh, to be able to uh, use torpedoes from different manufacturers in the future, or, or, or use torpedoes that their allies hold stockpiles of. And that's been very successful um, in uh, export markets, but we also supply that into the United Kingdom as well. Um, at ELAC, uh, ELAC um, sonar in Kiel, um, uh, our hydroacoustic products there, things like underwater communications and echo sounders, have been immensely successful over many years. Um, so those are some of our, our most profitable uh, products at the moment. Um, looking to the future, some of our most promising products um, are uh, the new complete submarine sonar system that ELAC Sonar is, is providing. Um, they've provided that um, to uh, customers in Southeast Asia. Um, we're now providing that uh, to a very important customer in Europe, building new submarines um, uh, in Italy. Um, so the new Italian submarines will be, will be using uh, our, our sonar system. Uh, and we see that as uh, offering uh, a really attractive uh, set of capabilities for other uh, advanced nations as well. Uh, it's absolutely world-class. Um, in chess, well, one of the, uh, one of the impacts uh, of the Ukraine conflict has been the enhanced importance of being able to counter unmanned air systems, drones. Uh, and chess's um, technology is exceptionally capable at being able to track and identify drones um, and provide fire control solutions uh, for, uh, for weapons. And we're working with a number of major uh, providers um, uh, and, and already supplying uh, our system for that purpose. And I think that that's likely to be more important than ever in the future uh, as the importance of, of drones on the battlefield has, been, um, has become clearer. Mm. Uh, at SCA, uh, I think we've got a couple of really important products. Um, one um, uh, very important, I think, um, in, um, well, really from the Indian Ocean to Australasia and everywhere in between, because of the growing size of the uh, Chinese submarine fleet and the very large numbers of North Korean submarines, uh, is um, a submarine detection system we call CRATE. Uh, that's, that's crate with a K as opposed to uh, a wooden box. Um, and that is, uh, that is deployable from uh, small naval surface vessels um, and enables them to detect submarines and to very much narrow and constrain uh, the actions available to a submarine commander. Um, whereas um, uh, you know, in, in, in the UK, for example, in order to deploy a capability like that, one needs a very large vessel indeed, like a Type 23 or 26 frigate. But this new capability makes it much more suitable for navies in that region. And we're also providing um, 
defense against um, the new hypersonic missiles uh, with our with our decoy launcher, um, which uh, has a, you know, a, a, the, the ability um, to uh, uh, provide um, uh, patterns of decoy launches um, very rapidly designed to defeat specific threats as soon as those are detected. Because, you know, against a modern hypersonic missile threat, the ship simply doesn't have time to maneuver. Um, the decoys have to go where you need them. You can't just move the ship uh, in order to point them in the right direction. So those are some examples uh, of the kind of um, products that we're operating that we believe um, have a really good future. Um, I can, uh, well, another I can mention is the, is the soldier integrator system that's being provided by EID, our Portuguese business, uh, which provides um, a full battlefield picture to infantry soldiers, even when they're out of their vehicle, um, enabling uh, the kind of fast maneuver, uh, again, that's been shown to be so important in the Ukraine conflict um, and the lack of it um, uh, uh, such a handicap to any kind of uh, active defense operation. Sorry, quite a long answer. No, no, it's all fascinating stuff. That's, that's exactly what I wanted. So let's look then to uh, orders and visi future visibility. Um, uh, one of the things that attracted me to find out more about this show is that you're, you're not only posting strong growth and record profits, but at the same time, your order book's also rising. And it's now, well, at year end, I think it's 329 million, and it's risen further, I see you've uh, publicly stated since then, which is getting on for double annual revenues. So, so talk us through what's happening there. And in particular, I just picked up something from your presentation where uh, sorry, rather rambling question <laughs> from me, but the, the growth um, that equity development are forecasting within this new financial year is quite modest, but you talk about an acceleration of growth in 2025. So could you yeah. talk us through all of that, please? Yeah, certainly. I think the, um, the, the order book um, is the best sort of visible and quantified uh, indicator of future growth, of course. Mm, yeah. um, but from inside the business, one sees things in a slightly different way as well, uh, because we look at our pipeline and the, um, and the number of, or, uh, of order opportunities that we have and the customers that are approaching us um, uh, talking about you know, acquiring some of our capabilities. Um, so that enables us to uh, give a better idea of, of how the growth story is, is likely to evolve. Um, you're right that the order book has grown fast. I mentioned before that um, it, it's grown you know, really quite radically over the last 10 years. It's growing faster now than it really uh, has, uh, as I can remember. Um, and in, um, at the end of June uh, this year, we were up to 360 million uh, in terms of order book. So that's two years into the two months rather into the new financial year. Um, and, uh, you know, we continue to see some very good prospects in V. Uh, what's, what's driving that? Um, well, it's um, primarily uh, you know, the, two, the two main factors. Sorry, there's a little bit of noise in the background, so I'm just going to switch yeah. to um, speaking to you on the phone. If you know, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so that's uh, it, you know, primarily the two main factors that are driving defence demand worldwide. Um, one of those, of course, is the conflict in Central Europe. Um, and, um, you know, as I've said, that is that is um, that has really brought home to NATO and European governments the overriding importance of maintaining national security for their populations. Um, you know, all, all of the important things that governments would like to spend money on um, health, education, infrastructure, transport, um, you know, all of the things that are important for day to day life 
um, all you know, hinge on um, uh, the, the basic facts of security, that your neighbors are not firing large amounts of missiles and looking to destroy your infrastructure. Um, yeah. And you know, if events over the last year have shown that that is no longer an assumption that can be reliably um, uh, rested on. Um, and of course, people recognize that the way to stop that um, uh, is twofold. One is that uh, you know one has to have a security posture, uh, which makes it unlikely that any potential adversary would want to attack you. Uh, and secondly, if the worst happens and they do, you've got to be able to deal with it. And so we've seen significant um, growth in expenditure on defence um, uh, by, by most of uh, the NATO countries, um, and certainly uh, you know all, all looking to move towards the two percent of GDP threshold, and many looking to exceed that. So that's driven quite a bit of growth. And as well, Ukraine has also shaped uh, the kind of capabilities that people are looking uh, to uh, to get as well. I mentioned already the importance of, uh, of counter-drone capability, um, but um, electronic warfare and the ability to operate in a, in a very contested electromagnetic spectrum environment is, is another. Um, and communications uh, and the ability to um, uh, manage you know, sort of disparate uh, forces for concentration at the last minute, um, because you know, co- uh, well, we, we need to get into into all of the details, but but I mean that that has become incredibly important. So that's that's part of it. And the other main factor that's driving defence demand is increased Chinese aggressiveness. And as I mentioned, that covers uh, a vast range of, of maritime expanse from the Indian Ocean down to Australasia. Um, and one very visible uh, impact of that has been the creation of uh, the AUKUS Pact, the Tri trilateral pact between the United Kingdom and the United States and Australia, which is going to result in uh, a new class of nuclear submarine being built, um, which will be used by uh, the Australians as well as ourselves, um, and is also um, a focus of many other areas of advanced technology for defence as well. Um, and that's, um, that's all intended to um, uh, uh, increase global security uh, by countering um, expansionism in those regions of the world, um, uh, and, and in particular to, um, uh, to assist Australia with its national, national security. Um, you know, it's not limited to that. Japan is doubling its expenditure of national security as a proportion of GDP, and it was already oh, pretty gosh. large. Right. Yes, uh, by, by 2027. And, um, uh, you know, and a lot of that's going on defense. Um, and um, in Southeast Asia, um, you know, we're seeing responses to the kind of aggressive naval actions, you know, on the ground. Or, 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 or on the sea um, and the littoral area uh, that, that China has been undertaking. So that, that's, that's been an important market for us as well. So overall, um, the market for defense products is growing and being configured as we are um, with um, innovative businesses that can produce solutions at um, very competitive costs to meet the requirements of these emerging customers. Uh, and we can do it very quickly as well. Uh, we're not constrained in the same way by the sort of slowness of process that larger businesses are. Um, so, so, I mean, that's the backdrop um, uh, to, to what we do. And um, I, I would say, you know, it's been positive for a while, but it's more positive now than it's, it's been for some time. Yeah. And is, was there anything specific between that expectation then for growth to accelerate uh, next year? Yes. Uh, yes, I mean, it's based on the set of uh, opportunities that, that we see in front of us and what we expect to be able to win in the course of this year. Um, right, that, that's it. Yeah. And the visibility for this year's revenues and profit is pretty much all in the back now, isn't it? Is that right? 
Um, not entirely in the bag, um, but mostly yes. Um, where I think you know we're north of ninety percent covered uh, of the for the um, uh, consensus uh, revenue forecast. Um, uh, of course, that doesn't mean that there's no risk at all. We still have to deliver, and delivery risk is often as important as order winning risk. Um, mm. But yeah, I would say overall we do feel confident about the year. Good. Okay. And supply constraints, things like semiconductors, is that uh, has that been an issue, or is it does it remain an issue for you? Um, it certainly was an issue in, um, over the over the COVID period, um, uh, both in terms of lead times and in terms of pricing. Um, uh, but but we were able to cope with that. Um, it's now more or less sort of back on a, on a much more even keel. Well, that's good to hear. And then just finally, a, a rather boring accounting question, really. Just on the balance sheet, I focus on balance sheets a great deal in all the all the hundreds of companies I analyze. I'm very happy with Cohort's balance sheet, I, I am pleased to say. Um, now, you've got a cash pile of $41.5 million, but simultaneously bank borrowings of $25.8 million, which doesn't seem terribly logical to me. Wouldn't it make sense to, to, to pay off the bank debt to save on interest costs? Um, well, um, I, you know, the, the calculus is changing as interest rates have risen, um, you know, when, when they were at sort of next and I think it didn't make an awful lot of difference either way. Mm. Yeah, we could do that. Um, we do have some capital expenditure uh, needs coming up. Um, we're building a new facility for ELAC um, just um, a few miles away from its current one uh, where the, um, uh, the landlord is going to knock it down and um, uh, rebuild it uh, as part of Keele University. So we need to do that. Oh, I, well, went, I did my degree at Keele. Yeah, happy days. And, oh, oh, <laughs> ah, wait a minute. I think you're thinking of Keele um, as in uh, as in oh, Lancashire. You're um, talking Germany, aren't you? Sorry, talking, yeah. Schoolboy era. Between <laughs> Keele, Keele and Schleswig-Holstein, which yes. is <laughs> distance away. Um, uh, but um, uh, so that's um, uh, so, we're, so we're having to build a new facility there. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, we're, we're building it on balance sheets. Uh, how we how we decide to finance it. Not not yet decided on the longer term. We may may do a sale and lease back, but I mean at the moment, I think what we need is the, the flexibility, and obviously we're generating uh, enough cash to do that, and our other mm. meeting our other investment needs as well. Um, so yes, I mean um, uh, and, and, uh, it's helpful as well to have some cash on the balance sheet for uh, investment and for acquisitions potentially if those if those pop up. Um, mm-hmm. But we we do have a lot of unused facility as well. It should be said um, okay. and. Uh, um, and with interest rates rising, you know, we may decide to take a slightly different uh, position on that. I mean, it's not really material in terms of annual costs at the moment, but it's getting a little more so the way interest rates have come up. You know, so you're right. You're right to, to notice that. Okay. And just a suggestion that are more than a question, really. I say this to all companies I talk to. I'm trying to promote the idea of companies reporting average daily cash rather than just balance sheet snapshot. Uh, cash figures which can gyrate all over the place you know or even be window dressed um so is that something you'd consider taking up no certainly have a look at it i can i can absolutely see the point yeah um uh, especially for a business like ours where um you, you know you often get large fluctuations in cash day to day as we have um uh you know large milestone payments or end of contract type payments um yeah which which have a sort of you know material impact overnight on the um on the cash balance yeah absolutely well i think that's probably uh that those are all the questions i had are there any closing remarks or points you want to make to finish off 
Um, I suppose I'd just say that, that you know the things I think about um, uh, f- uh, for cohort um, are, you know, our, our, our objective is to become a serious-sized European player in the, in this business, um, and I, I hope you'll agree that we've made quite a lot of progress towards that. Um, you know, in, from the time of our uh, original flotation to to where we are now, I would say there's still some way to go. But I, I think you know that that is um, a vision which is in sight, and I think the um, uh, the operating strategy that we have is a good one and will see us well um, towards meeting that aim. Um, and what we're trying to do um, in all of that is well, there are three things really. I mean, one is. Um, that as an organization, we are assisting the security of the United Kingdom, um, of the two other countries that we operate in, Portugal and Germany, and of the many countries that we export to as well, who are the, the allies um, of the United Kingdom. Um, we're looking to provide high levels of high-quality employment in the UK and our two other operating uh, countries as well. We've grown our workforce by about 10% over the last year um, to uh, a bit over um, 1,100 people, and a very high proportion of those are um, scientists, engineers, technologists, mathematicians of one kind or another. So we're, we're looking to provide that socially valuable, um, high-quality employment. Um, and finally, but by no means least, we're looking to provide a decent return to our investors. Um, uh, and you know, dividends reflecting our successful financial performance um, and in the longer term share price growth reflecting our development as a business as well. Um, you know, those, those are my objectives. Um, I, I hope we've had a bit of success in doing that so far and it's what we aim to continue doing into the future. Yeah, very interesting. And uh, just a, a point that's popped into my head as well is that looking at the long term share price chart, it's just been in a sort of steady downward gentle downward drift for the last three or four years and yet during that time you know you've produced um you you basically double profitability so and and historically cohort shares were rated on a pe of 20 plus and at the moment they're only about a forward pe of about 14 so there's maybe an opportunity there for a re-rating of the shares i mean how do you feel about that well i mean there are many factors that um uh, affect the share price um, on A. Um, liquidity is obviously one. Um, the attractiveness or otherwise uh, of A more generally is another, and it's certainly suffered compared to the main market recently. Mm. Uh, and of course, um, the uh, interest rate changes, uh, although as you've seen with us, uh, they have a kind of minor effect, but we have net cash. So it's not really a, a negative for us in the same way that it might be for businesses looking to debt finance themselves much more. So there are all sorts of factors for, uh, behind that. Um, I take the view that I can't affect any of those things. Uh, all yeah. I can affect is um, the results that we deliver uh, in terms of um, you know, uh, overall profitability so, um, and, and cash and dividend too. So the, the, those are the things that we try and do, and we have faith that in the end value will um, be properly ref- reflected in the share price. In the meantime, I could not disagree with you that perhaps it's a little <laughs> undercooked. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Well, that's been genuinely fascinating. Thanks for your time, Andrew. I've really appreciated it. And I certainly feel motivated to plow through the rest of the annual report and the presentation slides and do a bit more work on it. So thank you very much indeed. Maybe we can have a chat again in six or 12 months or something, see how things are going. Yeah, absolutely. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed, Paul. Thanks, Andy. Take care now. Bye for now. Bye-bye.